Welcome to the teaching ministry of Dr. Fred Lowry, illuminating God's Word for today's world. The choice, the Word of God, or the world. The choice, Christ, or culture for us. We can choose Christ. Nehemiah was a godly man, and we can assume that he had a godly father. In fact, he talks about his heritage. He says, God is prospering us because of our heritage. He grew up in captivity around pagan rulers, and yet this man walked with God, and that tells me that he had a godly father. And the greatest gift you can give your family is to give them a godly husband, a godly father that your children will one day rise up and call you blessed. Uh, so we want to just to honor you men today in, in this place and because we get, you know, we get uh, uh, sometimes they give us a hard time because of things that we're not good at or don't always do. You remember a few years ago when the father was putting the, had the baby in the baby seat for the car and he put the child in the baby seat on top of the car, remember, and then forgot about it and got in and drove off with the baby on top of the car and the baby lands in the middle of the freeway. You remember that story? Check it this way. Do y'all just not get out at all? Did you read? Surely you should remember that story, but it, it, that's a true story. The baby was fine, but uh, the father has not ever been able to live that down. And another father that they had identical twins and he was in charge of them for all day. And when the mom got home, one child was fine. The other child was starving to death because he had been feeding the same child. So we get things a little mixed up at times and they're not good at everything. But I hope that we are men who want to be the best that we can be for God. So I want to talk to you today about how to handle money conflicts. I know you've never had anything like that, so this sermon is, is not for you. I just want you to take notes for your neighbor there. Would you do that? Because your neighbor needs this sermon. We have conflicts are inevitable. You have conflicts with your mate. If you're married, guess what? You have had conflicts. And, and you know what research is telling us? That it, it, it doesn't matter whether you love the person or not. If you don't learn how to handle conflicts and disagreements, you're not going to have a good marriage because they're always there. Every marriage has conflicts. In fact, uh, you know, there's a little possibility of a conflict this week within my own marriage. Leah's in New Mexico uh, waiting on that baby, which, you know, I would like to be in New Mexico with them. But not only that, she tells me on the phone this morning that. Uh, Saturday, she went out with, with Key, my son-in-law, at, to the driving range, and he taught her how to hit the golf ball. Then later that evening, he played nine holes of golf with her, and she scored 50 and parred one hole, hitting it straight down the middle every time. That can cause a conflict in our marriage. <laughs> That's not right. There's nothing right about that. So if you're married, you're going to have some conflicts in your marriage, with your children, with your boss, with your friend, in all relationships. Now, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, remember in chapter 4, it was opposition from without, external opposition. In chapter 5, it is internal opposition. And in the first five verses, we have a major money crunch. 
causing internal problems within the Jewish family. Now, have you ever had internal problems within your family with money? Have you ever had a disagreement with your husband or wife over money? All of you have, except those who would lie about it, because that can be such a, an issue in us because we all you know, have, to, have to watch what we do financially. Every 33 seconds, another family gets behind on credit card debt. They, have, they get to the end of the money before the end of the month. And you see, as we, as we look at this problem with money in, in America, uh, the, the average family, I think the, the average American family's ambition is to make as much money as, as they spend already. <laughs> if somehow we can make enough money to, to just meet our debts. We, we're willing to, uh, you know, to, to pay as we go. It's just that we've got to first be able to pay for what the places we've already been and what we've already spent that money on. So money can be a major conflict, and we find it right here in this passage of Scripture. Three reasons for the money crunch. Number one, famine. Number two, high interest rates. Number three, too many taxes. Let's look at verse one. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're not mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our, subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So in verse 1, it's a great outcry from husbands and wives because of a great problem. What is the great problem? Running out of food. Now, this 52-day project has not caused the problem. It was just the straw that broke the camel's back. In verse 2, we have big families, so we, and they must eat to stay alive. So the problem here, you circle famine there. Too many people, too little food. Verse 3, they're mortgaging their fields and homes to buy food because they have large families and they have to live. Verse 4, in order to keep their property, they were... Others, in order to keep their money, were borrowing money from their Jewish brothers to pay taxes to King Artaxerxes. So here's the picture. We have God's people involved in God's project ripping one another off. Now, that's sad, isn't it? But that's the picture we have here. In verse 5, it gets worse. Creditors have taken away their property and sold their children into slavery. The last part of verse 5, it's summed up in, in one phrase. We are powerless. Our sons and daughters are being carried away as slaves and we can't do anything about it because we're mortgaged up to our eyeballs. Some of you have gotten yourself in a financial condition to the point that you cannot obey God. And you've moved out from under God's umbrella protection because you've, you've allowed materialism or you've spent more money than you've had coming in and now you can't do what God wants you to do. As we get ready to build this building this fall, and as we call on you to make commitments to, to, to pay for this building, you want to be in a position where you can obey God because God will speak to your heart and tell you what He wants you to do. 
So we need to be careful that, that we, we are in that position so that we can obey God. Now, there's not anything wrong with having stuff. There's something wrong with stuff having us, and that's materialism. Now, when Nehemiah recognized the problem, he got angry. Now, it was righteous indignation, but it was anger. The first five verses, the problem services. The next five verses, it's solved. Verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Very angry because of the measure of his concern for God's people and the work of God. When he saw what was happening, he thought, this is so wrong. This is not right. This is terrible. And he became angry. You know what our problem is? We get angry about the wrong things, and we fail to get angry about the things that we ought to get angry about. There's so much in our world that we ought to be angry about. Righteous indignation. Unfortunately, most of our indignation is unrighteous. But there's, think about abortion. The murdering of babies, and now with the sonograms and the stuff that we're able to see, we know that this is murder and that this is wrong. And yet, we stay silent. We don't take stands. We don't get angry about it. Now, understand that with righteous indignation, you can get angry, but your response is never to be an unchristian response. When you get angry about abortion, you're never to act in an unchristian manner. That's also wrong. But we need to be so close to God that when things are happening in the society around us that are wrong, that we would be angry, angry about these things. Uh, the politically elite in our country, the, the media, is just so messed up and, and puts a message out there that is often an ungodly message. Uh, that should stir our hearts, that we would become angry with the, the picture of the family and of marriage on television uh, that's, that, that shows so much of the adultery and, and uh, homosexuality and all the things that are out there. Those are the kinds of things that ought to stir us and we should become angry about it, but with righteous indignation. There were four things that Nehemiah was angry about. Number one, selfishness. Number two was greed. Number three, insensitivity. And number four, disobedience. They were knowingly disobeying the law of God. Now, if you want to know what drove this man to righteous indignation was his commitment to God, his reverence for a holy God. God is holy. God has given rules for the family. And his own sense of righteousness, his compassion for God's people, all of those things caused this man to overflow with anger at the unrighteousness that was happening among God's own people. Now, Nehemiah got them both right. He was angry, but he stayed righteous in his anger. It was righteous indignation for the right thing, and he kept the right attitude. Verse 7. I pondered them in my mind. He, he talked himself, and here's this great problem. It's surfaced now. How can it be solved? And he thinks about it, and we've already found that his pattern is to pray about everything. So he prays, and he listens to God. I told them. He accused the nobles and the officials, and he said, I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Now, 
he believes, as every good leader does, in direct confrontation. If you're going to solve an issue, you've got to be honest and open and forthright and, and deal with it head on. I heard about uh, two men who had a disagreement and couldn't work it out, and they went to the town sage to try to solve it for him. So that first, first night, uh, one man went, told his story to the sage, and the sage said, you are absolutely right. The next night, the second man went and told his story, and the sage looked at him and said, you are absolutely right. The wife said, I can't believe it. One man comes and tells his story to you, The other man comes and tells his story. They are entirely different stories. And you said both of them, you're absolutely right. One has to be wrong. Both cannot be right. The man looked at his wife and he said, you are absolutely right. Some people are like that. They cannot confront. They tell you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. A good leader doesn't tell you what you want to hear. He tells you what you need to hear. He doesn't have to have your love. He wants your respect. That's very important in leadership. What we do, let me tell you what Baptists do. We don't confront. If somebody does wrong, we don't dare confront it. We go tell 50 people about it. Of course, we always make it sound spiritual. Let me tell you what happens so you can pray about it. Hello. Or you say, you you know, I'm not going to go to the person because that'll just hurt them. You you think telling 50 people about it won't hurt them? That hurts them a lot worse. So if there's an issue, confront that issue. That's what Nehemiah did. He makes three accusations. Number one, he says, you're charging interest to fellow Jews. You say, well, why why is that so wrong? Because God said, that's not the way the family does. Deuteronomy 23, 19. Do not charge your brother interest. Anybody have trouble understanding that? Simple, isn't it? Whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother Israelite. So that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you're entering to possess. So here's what was happening. This group of a group of people within the family there of God that saw an opportunity. They were opportunists. Here is a quick way to make a lot of money fast. We will take advantage. We will gouge them. That's the problem even today, isn't it? We we hear things like that all the time. In fact, this is something that, that I just heard last week on Fox News and I don't even know what we'll do without Fox News to hear the other side of what's happening because it seems like all the other networks have the same, play the same thing. When I get out here to the, to the right, Lee, you know, Lee says there's no telling what I'll say, so let me get way on out here today. But the, the Chevron and, and Texaco, they were, they were talking about the oil companies, and now they've, they've gotten some of these memos that actually say, and if you're with Chevron or, or Texaco, get your act together. Uh, it, they were saying that, that we can't produce this amount of oil uh, and make a lot of profit. Therefore, we're not going to produce so much oil and the profit will come up. Well, and then we have uh, higher prices. So, and and they're, I, what they said on the news, now this is just the news, this is Fox News. They said they're making record profits and yet our price continues to go up. I tell you what else bothers me with the gasoline deal is the, the taxes you see on the pump. 
we don't even know what all that goes for. I mean, they just keep, you know, just adding more tax and more tax and more tax. So it's not that the gas costs so much, the taxes cost so much when you get, when you get to, the, to the pump. In fact, since you brought it up, we are, we are overtaxed, but nobody gets concerned about that. It's not, you see, the problem is not that I'm for, I'm for the social services. I'm for taking care of who we need to take care of. I'm for all that. But what I am not for is for the billions that's wasted. That's our tax money that's wasted. If it's our tax money, don't waste it. Take care of it. But I mean, we got, we're still funding programs out there that, that, that the purpose is to get telephones to the rural community. Hello. They got cell phones and computers out there on the trackers. You, you, you understand? We just, programs get started and they just go on and on and on forever. And so many billions are wasted that could be saved. Well, let me get back to this. Don't get me out there anymore because it's a dangerous uh, place to be. So here's his accusation. He says, you're charging interest to your brothers. Not only that, you are charging exorbitant interest. Usury. We're family. We're the family of God. We have rules for the family. And the rule is, do not charge your brother interest. Now, they were allowed to charge interest to foreigners, to other people. They could even lend money to a Jew. But they couldn't charge interest for it. They also could not enslave another Jew. They couldn't take his property or they couldn't take his children. So the first accusation, he says, you're charging interest to fellow Jews. It's wrong. The second accusation, straightforward, head on. You're causing the permanent slavery of the Jews. Look at verse 8. As far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. I love this phrase. They kept quiet. Because they could find nothing to say. Do you know what you'll find when you just directly confront when you know it needs to be confronted? They don't know what to say. They're used to you just not doing anything and going and telling 50 people. But when you actually deal with it forthrightly, they don't know what to say. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now, here's what Nehemiah said. We've already been through this. Our brothers have been taken into slavery into captivity, and we have bought them back. Now you're doing the very same thing again. We, we don't need permanent Jewish slavery. Accusation number three. You are losing respect from the nations around us. Verse nine. So I continue. What you're doing is not right. Let me read that translation for you in the Greek, what the Greek says. What you're doing is not right. Pretty close, isn't it? Everybody understands that. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? We're the people of God. We know what God has said. Should you not walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? They are laughing at us because we claim to know God, we claim to follow God, and yet we openly violate God's laws. And he makes his judgment. He says, this is not right. We say we're God's people, but we do not obey God. That is not right. But you know what the response to that is? Well, it may not be right for you. You heard that, didn't you? 
Well, it may not be right for you, but, you know, we're able to do that. You know what we don't like to hear? See, Amer most Americans don't even believe anything is right, right. That anything is always right and some things are always wrong. The word the, the politically elite out there hate is anything, there's no such thing as absolute truth. When you say absolute truth, guess what? You become an enemy in today's world. Those of us who say, yes, some things are right and some things are wrong, there is absolute truth, then we become an enemy in our society. And that's a sad day. That's something we ought to be angry about. Because ladies and gentlemen, there are things that are always wrong, absolutely wrong, and will always be wrong. There are some things that are always right. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. And we should not be afraid to, to spell it out there. But I tell you, it's not popular. And it's not what you're hearing out there. It's not what you're seeing out there in, in today's world. Now, this, uh, this Nehemiah now corrects the problem. He, he, he tells them what they need to do. Verse 10, I and my brother and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. I, I think it's interesting to know that Nehemiah was doing what he could to help. You know, it's one thing to say, well, that's a problem, that you shouldn't be doing it that way, but we need to be doing what we can to help in the right way. Now, he was helping the people. And so here's how he corrects the problem. Number one, he says, stop it now. Just stop it. Do you understand you can't gradually stop sinning? You've got to stop it. I mean, you can walk down here and, and, and tell me, Pastor, you know, i got this, this sin going on in my life, and you know, I'm, I'm gradually trying to taper it off. I'm going to say, you ain't going to make it. It's not going to happen. You can't gradually stop sinning. Remember when I, in the first part of the year, when I gave up Snicker bars, Goo Goo Clusters, and Diet Cokes, and all the wonderful things in life, I couldn't gradually do that. You've got to stop it. Had I gradually done it, I'd still be doing it. So he says, stop it right now. Number two, he says, correct it quickly. Verse 11. Give back to them immediately, circle immediately, their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury, the exorbitant interest you're charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. So stop it now. Do it quickly. Do it immediately. Correct it quickly. Number three, he put the plans for correction. He says, you're going to put the plans for correction in a vow before God. Verse 12. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. <laughs> Have you ever had anybody tell you what they're going to do and then they didn't do it? Nehemiah knows people. He's a good leader. He knows men. They said, no problem. It's settled. It's done. We'll never do it again. It's over. We'll give them back everything that we've taken from them. Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Circle the word oath. So the fourth thing is vow it to God. Verse 13. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. 
So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. That's a great phrase. Shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen. I'd just like to preach one time somewhere in the world that when I said something that was absolute truth, that the whole crowd, every person, man, woman, boy, girl, career person, single person, said amen. Hadn't happened 40 years. It didn't happen then, understand? <laughs> saying amen to preachers is like saying sick of a dog, but we don't understand that. So you've got to encourage us. You want better sermons? We need a little more encouragement. You want better sermons? We need a better crowd. Get with it. All right. And, hey, thank you, brother. Thank you, thank you. And here's where I know that we, we're not dealing with Baptists. Look at here, it says, and the people did as they had promised. That's how it ought to always be, right? Everything we promise to do, we ought to do it. Don't you love people who do what they tell you they're going to do? Every leader loves those kind of people. Now, I want you to circle the phrase, shaken out and emptied. Here's the great Jewish shakedown. You see... Nehemiah, he's wearing this, this robe, and the robes in that day were you know, these large robes, and they had these folds in them, and they tied them in such a way that they actually kept their possessions in the robe. So Nehemiah's going to give a little visual aids here, and he opens up the folds of that robe, and he says, this is what God's going to do to you. The, the folds represented their possessions. He even says houses and possessions. And if you keep disobeying God, what God's going to do is he's going to shake you until everything falls away from you. Houses, possessions, everything you have. He's going to shake you down and then it says, and empty you. You see, a life lived in total disobedience to God, the end result is emptiness. God says, if you don't walk in my ways, there could come a time that I shake you down and I empty all that you have. I tell you this, if you've ever been shaken by God, after it was all over, you felt empty. Now you say, what does chapter 5 have to do with me, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Plenty. It's, it's really a contemporary passage because it talks about money, interest, mortgage, conflicts, conflicts over money. Every one of those things we're involved in. So let me give you some practical truths about handling concepts, handling conflicts, especially conflicts involving money. Number one, it is important to handle our money wisely. I wish I had time to talk about this. I don't. Spend some, save some, give some. Three things you need to do with your money. Spend some, save some, Give some. And of course, give God the first part. You know, I used to say I didn't know a man until I prayed with him, but I found out that's not true because we've learned how to pray. And if God just answered half our prayers, we'd be in a big mess, wouldn't we? So, but you know a man when you deal with him about his money. That's the great revealer. That's the spiritual barometer of where we are spiritually. Number two, internal strife usually stops our progress. You notice that? You see, if you're having a lot of internal strife in your home, guess what? The progress you're making as a family comes to a screeching halt. It's true in a church. You see, we don't hear anything mentioned about the wall being built. We're trying to rebuild this wall. What's happening to the wall? They've stopped building the wall because there's all this internal opposition. 
You see, what we need to do, God's work, is unity, harmony. And, what, and Satan knows that. So what Satan does is he tries to stir things among us internally so there is discord and disunity. And he knows if he can do that, he can stop the progress of the work of God. And that, my friend, is one of his favorite tools. He is the one who constantly stirs things up and sows discord among the brethren. And by the way, the only way the devil gets in the church is through a member. <laughs> That's how he comes in the place. And so what the devil does is he gets in a heart and life and he uses that person to sow discord and disunity. And so the project stops. Number three, a good way to solve any problem is to face it head on, to confront it head on, to be open and honest. You see what we, we tend to deny a problem or to excuse it or to justify it. He pulled no punches. He dealt with it straight on. You see, the real issue is sin. And, 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 and if there's an issue in your life that's sin, don't call it something else. Don't try to hide behind, well, it's, you know, nobody's perfect. Or that's just the way I am. You're not going to ever get that sin out of your life until you call it what it is and you acknowledge that God is displeased with it and God wants it out of your life and you agree with God and you ask God to help you get it out of your life. Number four, the accountability of a public pledge is extremely effective in correcting a problem. The accountability of a public vow, a public pledge. Now, I mentioned a while ago in the first of the year when, when I told you that I was giving up Snickers and, and Diet Cokes and Goo Goo Clusters and, and USA Today and clothes and all that kind of stuff. I was giving up the things that... Uh, you know, really uh, add a little sizzle in my life that I enjoy. Uh, you know why I came out here and told you? Two reasons. One is, I wanted you to know that I'm asking God to show me about sacrifice and begin to prepare my heart for sacrifice. And the, but the second is, only if I tell you, probably, will I do it. Because, you see, I'm just as human as you are. And if I come out here and say, I'm giving up snicker bars, that is incredible accountability. Because in my office is a, a drawer full of snicker bars. But they're still there. Why? Because I've got people all around here who are watching me. And that's what I want them to do. Diet Cokes. See, nobody has seen me pick up a Diet Coke, but they're all watching me. You say, how can you just give up Diet Cokes? Because I know they're watching me. I needed a vow publicly so that I could do it. Just like clothing. How many of you have seen me in a clothing store trying to buy a suit or a new shirt? I'll tell you what did happen this morning. This is a, this is a little miracle here. Some, one of our men gave me a Father's Day gift. I saw it, it looked like a tie box. I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and I opened that thing up, and I, you know, I just got emotional. I just thought, you know, well, there is a God. But you see, if, if, if we step out there, and we make a vow, and we do it publicly, 
then that holds us accountable. That's why these accountability groups are so great. Even in dealing with your marriage, you need some kind of accountability group where you say, I'm making this vow and I want you to hold me accountable to that vow. Public vows. And then number five, in solving conflicts, lead by example. Oh, Nehemiah is such a great leader, the consummate leader. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He has righteous indignation. He is getting angry for the right reasons, about the right things. And then he gives a plan how it can be solved, how it can be done. But he is also living it out before him because they see here is a man who walks with God. Here is a man who does what he says he will do. Here is a man who honors God with his life. You can listen to this man. And that's why they said nothing. Nothing, we're guilty. And then they said, we will do as you tell us to do. And he said, well, I know you want to, but let's make it a little harder. I want you to vow it to God. You see, when I ask you to vow to God, I'm really doing you a favor. Because I want you to be successful. I want you to carry out your promises. And since you brought it up, something that's, you know, that I've never understood completely is that we give an invitation at the end of the service. We're going to give it in just a minute. And in every invitation, you can come forward and renew a vow or make a vow to God. And you say, why do we need to, why do we need to walk down that aisle? The same reason I need to walk out here and tell you I'm giving up snicker bars. You say, well, what do people think if I walk down the aisle? Exactly what they need to think. Hey, this guy's making some kind of commitment. Let's watch him. Do you know the reason this aisle is empty many Sundays and the reason some of you have never walked down this aisle is because you don't plan to do what you say you're going to do. And you don't want anybody checking on you. But let me tell you, if you're really serious about God and what God's saying to you in your life, any kind of commitment God's leading you to do, if you walk down this aisle and make a public, by your walking down this aisle, everybody Jesus dealt with, he dealt with them publicly. There's something about coming forward that settles the issue and holds you accountable. That's why many times in 18 years I have stood in this altar with a staff member and made a new commitment, renewed a vow to God publicly because it's important. It says I really want to do it and I want you to watch me and help me do it. We hope you were blessed by our program today. If you would like a copy of today's program, go to www.fredlowry.com where you can find this program and other Christian resources by Dr. Fred Lowry. 